Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tennis Express. Please check them out this week by going to EssentialTennis.com slash Express. Well, thank you very much for joining me on today's episode of the podcast, a very special edition where I'm going to be interviewing Todd Martin. We talk about a lot of great topics, including how he got, how he got started in the game, his thoughts on reaching your potential as a rec player. We also talk about his time spent with Djokovic and the types of drills that they did together. And we discuss new racket and string technology, and also where he thinks tennis is headed in the future. Lots of really good uh, topics, and I really appreciate the time that he spent with me. And I know that you're going to enjoy our, our conversation. Real quickly before we get to that, I just want to say I'm sorry to everybody whose questions I didn't get to. I did ask him a lot of questions that were submitted by those of you that are listeners via email and Facebook and, and on the forums at EssentialTennis.com. Thank you to all of you that, that took the time to submit questions. Of course, I, I couldn't ask him all of them. We had a limited uh, amount of time, but um, I did get in as many as I could. Sorry to those of you who, uh, who I didn't get to your questions. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get to the interview. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. Today on the Essential Tennis Podcast, I have a very special guest he has an ATP, a top ATP ranking of number four, which he achieved in 1999. He also was part of the winning Davis Cup team squad in 1995. He was a finalist at the Australian Open in 94 and finalist at the U.S. Open in 99. And since his playing career, has been coaching high-performance players and, and tour pros as well, including Marty Fish and Novak Djokovic. My guest is Todd Martin. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ian. So I want to start off by just saying thank you very much for spending time with me. Uh, my, my audience, I know, is really excited that you're going to be on the show, and I'm really excited to, to be asking you some questions as well. So thank you very much for uh, agreeing to give me some of your time. We, we all appreciate it very much. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So let's, um, I'd like to start off with a couple of questions about how you got started with tennis. I'm curious, and I know that my listeners are curious as well. Can you please tell us your story as, as a tennis player, getting started in the game? When did you start playing, and when did you know that you wanted to pursue it 100%? Well, I, my parents, I grew up, uh, until I was 10, I grew up in Ohio, and uh, my parents were recreational players. They walk up the street to the park once a week uh, on the weekends and you know I was probably four or five when uh, they started letting me take batting practice after they were done and <laughs> I found that to be a, a lot of fun my dad had sawed off uh, an old wood racket in half and um, you know I got to the point where I was just sort of toting that around the house and probably knocking stuff over and my mom <laughs> showed uh, great patience with me but then before long I was uh, you know doing doing the once a week on the weekend park lessons and uh, 
uh, eventually, uh, probably when I was about eight or nine, I started going to the indoor courts and uh, taking it a little bit more seriously. And, um, you know, by the time I was 10, I moved to Michigan. And um, that's when, you know, that's when tennis became uh, a real passion of mine. Cool. So that, that seems to, and, and kind of in our modern, you know, professional tennis world, it seems like, you know, casual play at four or five and then starting to really take it seriously at age 10. And it doesn't sound like your parents really, it doesn't sound like it, like they really pressured you into it. It's kind of... No, that's, that's definitely the case. They, uh, they were, um, you know, my mom was, uh, uh, had her master's in phys ed and my father was, a uh, a high school athlete in three different sports and they just, you know, it was part of their lives, uh, together. So, um, they wanted, they wanted us to understand and appreciate sports, but you know, what sport was up to us and to what, um, extent was up to us as well. Well, that's great. It's 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 great to hear that you had so much success without your parents having to force you to do it and really pressuring you into it. And you and I talked briefly about, and now you have your own children. You've got three kids of your own, and it sounds like you're following that same model, which I think is great. Well, i i don't I don't think the way my parents raised me broke me, and um, <laughs> I'm not concerned about doing things the same way they did it. I think that, you know, there are some adjustments and, um, in this generation that need to be made just due to some of the surrounding circumstances. But for the most part, um, my wife and I would like our children to play more sports than less and, um, enjoy them to whatever degree they, whatever, whatever degree they're interested in. So, so these days with, professional tennis being so athletic and so competitive at the the junior level you know and going all the way all the way on up to to the professional level do you think that you know there's there's kind of this stereotypical tennis parent like kind of crazy tennis parent really driving and pushing their kids from a really really young age is that necessary these days to be successful at the professional level or can players also follow more of a path like what you did and still be successful? I think that uh, there are most, uh, the success can be had from most any path. Um, hmm. uh, just the other day I was watching a, a, a quick show and Marcelo Rios's background was mentioned and it said that he didn't take up tennis until he was 11. Um, hmm. uh, Marcelo is not the same age as Novak and Andy Murray and Rafa Nadal, but at the same time, uh, he's not 40 years old already. You know, he's in his early early 30s and was able to have great success. Um, you know, basically 10 years after he started the game. Um, I don't know how intensely he pursued the game once he took it up, but. Um, you know, the, the most important thing in, in athletics is passion. And what, uh, what I find people overlook in these adults or parents overlook in um, their child's development is the importance of that passion. Hmm. And if, um, 
if kids aren't, if that, if their interest in the sport is not nurtured um, or um, managed, let's say, uh, in the long run, when you know after puberty, puberty, and um, when the sport becomes much more up to them and they have greater ownership. Uh, a lot of the discipline won't be there and a lot of, uh, and a lot of the passion will be challenged and, you know, you don't know, uh, you don't know how that will respond. And I, I, I think there are very few kids who have been introduced to the sport, um, and introduced to it competitively early and, um, busy early. I think there are a few kids that didn't like tennis at the beginning. It's a matter of one uh, of getting them to love tennis when they're when they're done with it. And I think that's uh, you know that's uh, that's a huge challenge for parenting um, and uh, for for those of us who have a more um, relaxed and um, faithful uh, perspective on it and say, you know, what will be will be. Um, it's difficult for us to manage those things as well because there is a point where um, you have to discipline your children um, and and help them understand what pursuit of athletics uh, demands. Great. Well, that's a topic we could definitely talk a long time about, but I, I want to transition over to your perspective as a coach now. From a, and you, you just talked about passion, which I, I think is is awesome. And my my listenership, my audience, they're recreational players. You know, my my average listener is probably a middle aged person. You know, mom or dad, three five or around that kind of level. And they're just they're listening to my show because they want advice on how they can improve and and kind of reach their their potential. So f- from your perspective as a coach, what are the most important qualities? that my listeners can have apart from their whatever innate ability that they have if they want to reach their full potential on the court? Well, I think managing expectations is very important. And one of the best ways to manage those expectations is to have good sound um, instruction. And so that would be my first, that would be my first tip would be to, to find someone to uh, assist them with their game. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's going to be, you know, for some of your listeners, it might be um, people who are trying to make it from the 4.0 level to the 4.5 level. Some might be looking to get off the, the C or D team at their club. Sure. And uh, um, I think in a skill-oriented game, it's very difficult to uh, navigate the waters by yourself and at the same time um at the same time it's uh incredibly important that the instruction that that your listeners get be uh from someone who's not trying to teach the textbook but trying to trying to teach them hmm. and and teach improve them from where they are currently can you please elaborate on that uh, textbook versus uh, teaching the person? Well, the, you know, the textbook might teach you to hold the racket a certain way, 
but if if someone has been playing tennis for 30 years and let's say playing dare I say the wrong way <laughs> um uh it doesn't behoove them to be told to hold the racket the right way if that doesn't match their swing uh their swing paths and you know certain contact points that apply to you and me uh don't necessarily apply to someone who holds the racket uh dare I say the wrong way sure. and and so forth so you know you really have to a, a good instructor will uh will match what what their what their student comes to them with with what what their uh, student might be capable of doing do you see very many uh, teaching professionals teaching in that way, or do you see most kind of club pros doing a more cookie cutter approach? Well, it's it's different everywhere you go. I, I think uh, it it certainly underscores uh, the importance of good club leadership, good uh, program design. So you know the. The park districts and private clubs, tennis clubs around around the country, um, those who are led best um, get um, you know educate their their teachers the best, and that's uh, and also hold their teachers accountable for the type of instruction that they're that they're providing their students. So, so let's kind of transition over to your experience coaching professional level athletes what what about working with like a marty fish or a novak Djokovic? is it the same kind of approach as far as you know novak's been using x y or z grip or, or technique for for this long and i kind of want to work with that or within the confines of that rather than totally changing things up is that your is that kind of a similar approach with those players absolutely you gotta and it's it's not my favorite, uh, let's say my favorite part of the business, <laughs> but, um, you know, when you, when you walk out on the court with somebody who's 22 or 23, which is, um, uh, was approximately, uh, Novak and Marty's age when I started working with each one of them respectively, it, there, there are certain things that they've done uh, a certain way that are going to, that's going to make it pretty difficult to, to, um, to do much with, within the scheme of, uh, a competitive schedule. Um, you know, with Marty, uh, we, we spent a good bit of time restructuring his forehand, which was, um, for my liking, a pretty bold, a pretty bold step. Um, considering he was 23 or 24 at the time. Um, but he had gotten to the point where he had lost enough confidence or had never had enough confidence in that stroke uh, to feel like he was going to uh, make it the way, he, the way he had it. And um, I, was, uh, I admired him for, for being willing to take on that change, and, but at the same time it was a, a very challenging change for him to make and for us to uh, to work through with Novak I mean there's uh, boy there was there was such little um, 
that needed to be addressed uh, technically. It was much more about uh, how he went about his business uh, on the court and um, and how uh, let's see how his mindset was um, in a competitive setting and um, how he how he wanted to strategize against any one opponent. So I have a, a question here from John in the uh, the forums at EssentialTennis.com um, about Novak. He said, I'd like to know about his exp- uh, Todd's experiences working with Djokovic. What is a top player like Djokovic looking for in a coach? Well, that's a question that's probably better asked of, of Novak. But, um, you know, I, I, there was a huge cultural um, barrier there that was at times managed very well at times a bit challenging. Um, but you know, what Novak was looking for when he, uh, when he came to me was someone to, let's say, calm, calm the waters around him. You know, his, his life is, uh, is pretty tumultuous. You know, his family is, uh, very involved and, um, Novak is very involved in other business and, there's just a lot going on around him. And, uh, on top of it, he's a very emotional guy. And, um, you know, I think rightly or wrongly, he was looking for someone to, uh, to help calm those waters a bit. Hmm. So, so in the case of Novak, it was the, the work that you did with him was more emotional or, or mental as opposed to technical or technique. No, it was, it was, let's say, um, mindset, you know, um, psychological, but also tactical. I mean, he, he was very understanding that his game was, uh, too defensive to, uh, his strengths were his defensiveness, but at the same time he relied on those, um, on those attributes way too frequently. And he, he understood that. Um, so he, um, you know, he was also looking for someone to help him understand, uh, the offensive game a little bit better than he had it at that point in time and, uh, understand how to move forward. Okay. So, uh, Samir on Facebook asked, um, I would love to hear about what Todd did coaching wise with Novak. So what kind of, can you give us a, I guess just kind of a quick snapshot of like how do you design? Do you design drills for Novak then to work on that, or is it like a a point play scenario where you're just talking to him between points about shot selection, or how would you work on that? Well, it's uh, yeah, there there are some some drills uh, specifically that I would work on. I mean, one one thing that I think is incredibly important is is pace control and management and. Um, I think the best players in the world um, play with uh, play with great intention and purpose hmm. with regard to pace. And um, uh, the not great players, or the guys who don't maximize their potential, are the guys who get very ingrained in one one pace and just sort of metronomic tennis. And that. Um, that was something that Novak struggled with quite a bit. When I went out to hit with him the first time, 
I was amazed at how hard he hit the ball because it's certainly not what I had seen in his matches. Mm. It is what you see now. I mean, he, um, you know, he controls and dominates play with pace because he's, um, because he's being aggressive. And, um, you know, then you look at a guy like Andy Murray who plays the game very intentional with pace and it's all over the map. You know, he plays very soft sometimes. He plays harder. He changes up the pace very well. Um, so some of the drills I would do with, with Novak were understanding first and foremost, if he wanted to get to the net, understanding pace at the net and trying to manage um, get him to understand that uh, being at the net is about position as much as it is anything else. And in order to gain position, you have to hit the ball the right pace. And um, so, you know, some, some depth control drilling, you know, all this would be done in a, in a live ball setting, okay. but get him to get him to feel the volley instead of just hit the volley. Um, you know, we're all taught to stick the volley, but if you come in regularly, you're going to have to volley from a defensive position as well. And um, so I wanted him to understand uh, how best to control the pace of his volleys that way. Um, and then, you know, tons of tons of movement uh, movement drills on the court um, in a live ball setting that get him to understand uh, opportunities to shorten the court and and move forward and also understand when he needs to uh, play defense, when he really needs to play defense, not just by choice but by necessity, and, uh, um, and then navigating the, the waters in between those two extremes. Okay. I, I think that my, a lot of ears perked up in uh, my audience, when you when you mentioned something just a minute ago, you said that Novak, when you when you first went out and started working with him, you were surprised at how hard he hit the ball in practice, and yet during competition, he was kind of known for a more defensive overall style. And I, in my experience coaching recreational players, that's a really really common theme: is somebody hits you know, really confidently and solid and offensively during practice, but then in match play, they can't seem to really find that same level. What, what would you say to any listeners I have that have that problem? Well, it's, um, it's a lot easier to work with Novak Djokovic on these things than it is to work with uh, Sally or Barney <laughs> down at the club. No offense um, to Sally or Barney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But at the same time, um, you know, there there are loads of ways to do it. I mean, you can do it in a dead ball setting, where you know you play. I like to I like to think about things relatively two dimensionally. Um, I think that uh, some of the the more talented players over the years could hit uh, places on or spots on courts a little bit better but you know for me depth is a product of height spin and speed and so if i focus first on height um i can i can sort of figure out which window i need to hit in order to accomplish a certain thing and so 
Um, I like to, I like to talk a lot about the uh, the height over the net that the ball is played, and then once you force somebody to play, let's say three feet over the net, they can start to figure out what they need to do with the speed of the ball and with the spin that they impart on the ball to make something happen um, and to hit the to hit the proper spot on the court. Hmm. Um, and, you know, that can be done uh, in any number of ways. You know, it can be done for hitting the ball short in the court. It can be done for hitting the ball deep in the court. And then, you know, as much as anything else, you want them to play in order to um, make their best decisions as to when to hit certain shots. Okay. So so I'm curious, Todd. I, we're, you know, it's obvious in, in hearing you talk that you're you know, an analytical, kind of thoughtful guy. Obviously, you know a lot about the technical and mental, psychological uh, parts of tennis. Um, I'm curious, were you this technical, uh, technically minded when you were playing professionally, or have you only just started, um, I guess, analyzing the game this deeply since you started coaching? No, I, um, I, I was taught in Michigan when I... When I moved to Michigan in, in uh, 1980, I was 10 and um, you know, went to the local club and f- just like most everybody else, found the guy that was taking new students. And, uh, you know, as, as it turned out, I got incredibly lucky. He was a great coach, um, a great student of the game, and had a similarly analytical mind. And so we... Uh, we spent a lot of time discussing the game and not, uh, not nearly as much time, relatively speaking, hitting balls. Hmm. And, um, and that, that worked for me and it really helped. I mean, I was not a great athlete. Um, I had very good hand-eye coordination and stick ball coordination, but I was not a great explosive dynamic athlete. Um, I was not someone who played, a ton of tennis growing up. So I didn't have the repetition to, um, to make up for other deficiencies. It, in fact, it might even have been my, one of my deficiencies, not having more repetition. Um, so what I, you know, how I was taught was analytically and psychologically, um, and technically so that, you know, I had, a way to self-correct on the court. I had um, plans B and C, um, and then once I started working with Jose Higueras as a professional, I had more plans. And you know, um, so I would say um, my and uh, my analysis of the game is a product of my childhood and is increased through the years so you know that uh, when I first started playing professionally I, I, I looked at the game uh, much more from a brute force standpoint and um, and I wanted to you know overpower guys that was the nature of my game it was the nature of my strengths and um, I was part of a generation that came into the game that um, was new and different mm-hmm. from from those that had been dominating the game. So there was an opportunity there. 
Um, but as I got older and as the next, or as this generation started to take over the game, I needed to get much more creative about how to, how to handle all of what they could throw at me athletically. And, um, so, you know, I started playing much more creative, um, and unfortunately much less successfully. <laughs> so, so you think you should have stuck with your, your strengths and continue to play kind of big and offensive? No, I, I think I was, um, I was right in making the adjustments. Okay. I just wasn't good enough, um, at those, you know, at, let's say plan C and D as I needed to be in order to make those plans A and B. Gotcha. Well, let, I'd like to ask you just one or two more questions here before we wrap up. And uh, what you were talking about there about the um, kind of the evolution of the game during your uh, playing career actually feeds perfectly into the next question I wanted to ask you. Um, which do you think has made the bigger overall change in how pro tennis has evolved in the last 20 years? Has it been player training and athleticism or more so changes in racket and string technology? I, I don't know if you can quantify either one. Um, I, I'll tell you right now that um, they're both uh, at, the, at the front of the list. Uh, the string technology has allowed um, has allowed players to swing at the ball much more aggressively than ever before, um, due to the amount of spin that they can impart on the ball, uh, which. Uh, which without without making an indirect hit or a glancing blow, I mean, you know, Sergi Bruguera put a ton of spin on the ball back in our day, but he had to brush up the back of the ball way more than the average bear, mm-hmm. um, so his ball didn't fly as fast. Uh, I hit the ball real flat, so I hit it much harder than most people. Uh, now you've got guys who are spinning the ball as much as Bruguera did and hitting the ball faster than I ever dreamt of hitting mm-hmm. it. So um, the the string technology specifically has has made a huge difference in the game. Um, sports science and specifically strength and conditioning is through the roof improved um, in the last 20 years. It was 20 years ago. It was um, still being introduced, and you know it was you know, the transition into um, weight training systems and machines. And and now, you know, the guys have reverted back to much more dynamic training, medicine ball work, lots of core, core strengthening, lots of universal body strength and speed and endurance training that uh, is so scientific that, it doesn't even look or sound like what we did 20 years ago when I first started playing professionally. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know where those two um, pieces of rubber meet road in tandem, but I know that the guys wouldn't be able to play the way they do now um, if it weren't for the string technology and the um, and the gets to support that technology and I also know they wouldn't be able to play like they do now if it weren't for their ability to train their bodies um, 
to the level that they do. Um, but I know that, you know, more and more the game is a physical, physical game that demands of players greater athleticism than ever before. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, last question here. This comes to us from Charles in the forums at EssentialTennis.com. He said, where does Todd see the game going? For example, does he expect a player that can serve like Isner but move like Rafa in the future? Yes. Wow, really? Well, I mean, you know, I don't... Uh, that's, that's not spoken from any great knowledge of the game. It's spoken from a logic standpoint. Hmm, okay. Um, you know, I ten years ago I would have never dreamt of seeing uh, Marin Cilic, uh, Juan Martín del Potro, and I'm probably missing another guy my size that you know just move like gazelle right. and <laughs> um, and hit the ball amazingly well. You know, I and now we've got uh, Sam Query. Sam Query is another guy. If Sam's backhand were um, at the level of Chilich, I think we, you know, I think you'd have a top five, uh, a top five player in the world in in Sam Query, and he's an inch shorter than me. Um, you know, John Isner is demonstrating consistently that he's a top twenty, twenty-five player, um, and that's because he's a unique athlete. He's not a great athlete, but he's a unique athlete. He's 6'9", 6'10". He's got a tremendous serve and a great forehand. And um, those two weapons are uh, enough to carry the load for him at this point in time. I don't imagine that someone with John's exact skill set in 10 years is going to be as effective Hmm. um, because there will be more guys who are close to his size, if not his size, who will have learned how to hit um, all shots without the holes. You know, I, you know, you look at the top players in the world, and you know, Novak doesn't really have a hole. Some people used to think his forehand's a hole. I don't believe it is anymore. Um, Nadal has one tiny little hole and it's high to his backhand. Mm -hmm. Andy Murray doesn't have a hole. He just doesn't generate as much power as he needs to um, with as much control as he needs to. Federer is starting to be exposed to the backhand uh, more and more, but still is extremely strong. You look 10 years ago, Richard Krychek had holes. Pete Sampras had a hole in his backhand. Mm -hmm. Andre Agassi had a hole. He didn't move across the court as, as well as 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 well as his peers did, Thomas Enquist uh, the same and had no feel for the game. You know, it's the, there's the game is being played better and better and better as the years go by. So it just stands to reason, logic logic wise, common sense wise, that another ten or twenty years from now, geez, you know, John Isner is going to look like, um, you know, and an average player um, uh, if if you could fast forward. Well, Todd, uh, with that, I'd like to wrap up our, our talk here. But listen, thank you very much for your time and for your thoughts. I appreciate it very much. I know my listeners do as well. And by the way, everybody who uh, listening to this 
interview, please check out Todd's website. It's toddmartintennis.com. And Todd, any, anywhere else online that you want people to, to check you out? Yes. Well, you're very kind to offer, Ian. Go to uh, toddmartinkids.org, ah. which is my um, nonprofit organization up in Lansing, Michigan, my hometown. Awesome. Where we um, operate uh, national junior tennis and learning programs and leadership development programs and a first serve tennis chapter. So um, we can use all the help we can get. So I would ask them to go there before I'd ask them to go to my professional website. All right. So toddmartinkids.org. Everybody go definitely check that out. Um, any way that my listeners can help uh, in any way, Todd? Uh, you know, in order for for kid, for at-risk youth to learn how to play tennis, um, grow in their um, in their abilities to be constructive human beings and manage the troubles in their lives, it takes money. And uh, uh, up in Michigan, the economy is struggling, and so it's uh, it's always a challenge. So any uh, any support would be appreciated. There's directions on how to give on the website and. Uh, also, um, information on how to get um, uh, more information about how to help uh, our kids uh, up in Lansing, Michigan. Okay. Yeah, I see here uh, on the right side, uh, towards the bottom, donate today at uh, toddmartinkids.org. All right, so everybody, uh, please check that out. And Todd, again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. been great having you on the show. And um, good luck with your, your organization and your coaching and your kids and everything else. Thanks a lot, Ian. It's a pleasure. All right. That does it for episode number 189 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thank you very much for being a listener today. Really appreciate that you decided to spend uh, some of your time in your day listening to this episode. That really means a lot to me. And I hope that you really enjoyed my conversation with Todd Martin. And a big thank you one more time to him for, for spending some time with me and and recording that episode so that all of you could hear it. I, I hope that you all appreciate it as much as I do. <laughs> I think it was great of him to do that. So I'm going to pretty much uh, leave it at that for today's episode, getting uh, pretty long here. But I just want to say if you have any comments or, or questions about what you heard in today's episode, as always, please go and leave those at EssentialTennis.com slash podcast Click on episode number 189. I do my best to reply to all the comments and questions that, that get left in the podcast section of the, the website. And it's always great to hear from those of you that are listeners of the show. So please go do that. So that does it for this week. Thanks again for listening. Take care and good luck with your tennis. <laughs>